All right, so welcome to another episode of the Growing Down podcast. And today we're here with David Loy, and David is a professor, writer, and Zen teacher in the Sambo Zen tradition of Japanese Zen Buddhism. He's also a prolific author and is doing the very important work of connecting uh, the tradition of Buddhism with larger social and ecological uh, concerns. So David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Yeah, happy to do it. Great. So my first question to you is, I view the kind of work that you're doing as very important, especially at a time like this. Mm. How do you see your own um, role? Like, for example, are you, do you think of yourself as trying to connect the larger Buddhist Sangha in a kind of conscious social engagement? Or how do you see what you're, what you're trying to promote here? I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Buddhist teachers. There's a lot of Buddhist writers. Uh, there aren't so many focusing on this issue of, of the relationship between Buddhist teachings, which are mostly what Asian pre-modern and the kind of predicament that we find ourselves in today. So uh, over the years, there's been an evolution and it's been more and more about uh, in the last couple of years dealing with ecological issues. Uh, and I'm one of the founders of the uh, Rocky Mountain Eco Dharma Retreat Center up in uh, Boulder. So I'm also engaged in that. Uh, you know, we have this place where we can do meditation. In, in addition to that, I mean, I'm also qualified as a Zen teacher. So once in a while, I'll do a bit of that. But mostly it's more teaching about the relationship between Buddhist teachings and social issues, ecological issues. Yeah. And, and I guess I should add, I also have something of a background as an activist. So as you can tell, I'm one more white male boomer. And uh, when I came of age, it was the Vietnam War. And so I was a draft resistor at that time. I refused to go. And, you know, so I have this background uh, in sort of, uh, sort of nonviolent uh, direct action. Uh, and more recently, that's led me to Extinction Rebellion. Uh, I'm a member of several uh, XR groups here in uh, Eastern Colorado. Um, and the focus of that, as you probably know, is ecological, although also there's this shift recently to look at the, um, the, the social dimension as well, social justice issues, yeah. Yeah, and these are really, really obviously very hot topics, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> uh, for our time right now. So I'm curious, what do you think Buddhism or, the, or Buddhist ideas or concepts really bring to the conversation? Like how, do they, how does Buddhism and some of its practices or, or ideas enhance how we relate to and engage with social change in a positive way? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question because the Asian Buddhist traditions, as you probably know, haven't been that socially engaged. Um, actually, when I, when I look at, uh, when I go back to the Pali Canon, the earliest teachings, uh, it seems to me the Buddha was quite a bit more progressive than the institution that developed after he died. I mean, if you look at his uh, relationships, for example, uh, the Sangha he founded, uh, caste was really important in India at that time. And once you join the Sangha, you lose caste. So, you know, that, that's a pretty radical thing. And also the fact that he created a bhikkhuni sangha for women uh, with, you know, with the realization, based on the realization that women have the same potential to awaken. That's pretty radical, I think. Uh, unfortunately, after he died, um, 
the woman Sangha eventually died out after a while. And frankly, my suspicion is that the male monastics didn't like the competition. So anyway, the way Buddhism developed in Asia, the focus was very much on one's own individual suffering, one's own individual karma, what you've done earlier in this lifetime or your past lifetimes that you're now experiencing the consequences of. And so that, that understanding and that focus on one's own individual uh, dukkha suffering, uh, inevitably then, you know, it did not encourage issues of social justice or dealing with, for example, the king. Uh, what is the king doing? He might be the nastiest guy in the block, but Buddhism really doesn't talk about the institutional side, that, that dukkha suffering might be caused by the way society is structured. So when we look at the way Buddhism developed in Asia, there's, the, there's this problem. The good side of it is the way Buddhism did develop in Asia shows a lot of creativity, a lot of ability to transform itself when it comes into a new culture, a new context. And that's what we're really faced with now, now that Buddhism comes to not just the West, but the modern world. And it's a, and it's a world where issues of social justice and ecological collapse are really, really important. So, I mean, I'm saying all that in a kind of preliminary way to, to emphasize that the, the history of Buddhism isn't all that great when it comes to these issues, but there are things within it that I think are very important. Um, the two that I find myself talking about the most, one of them is this fascinating parallel that I see between what Buddhism identifies as, as, as the source of our individual problem, the sense of separation or duality. I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh famously said that we are here to overcome the illusion of our separateness. And, you know, we can look at the Buddhist teachings as the way to do that. What's fascinating about the ecological crisis is we can understand that basically it's the same problem uh, collectively. That I think the foundation there is we as a species, as a now global civilization, have the sense of separation from the earth. And we have the same challenge to sort of overcome the duality of separation. That's one thing. The other one that I really talk a lot about is the Bodhisattva path. Um, I mean, I think th that's really probably the most important thing Buddhism has to offer, especially if we understand it in a, in a somewhat new way. Um, talking about the Bodhisattva path, I, let me just mention, I think, three, three essential things there. Number one, the fascinating thing about it is the way that it involves a double practice, you know. So often, Buddhists and other people in con contemplative traditions think that the real practice is something like meditation and any kind of social engagement is a distraction from that. And really, uh, the whole idea of the Bodhisattva path is that you have a double-sided practice. It's not only your meditation or whatever, but also your engagement in the world is really important as well. And, and, and even on a personal dimension, it's part of our transformation. Um, Joanna Macy said that the world has a, a role to play in, in, in our awakening. And, and I think that's a really important part of it. It's not just that some experience happens when you're sitting on your cushion, but how do we integrate that into how we actually live in the world? And that's where the engagement becomes so important. 
The other aspect, number two of the Bodhisattva path that I would emphasize is that as opposed to the traditional focus, which was very much on individuals, maybe the best example would be like a, a, a teacher helping a student. I think we also need to find ways to address what I referred to earlier, the institutionalized dukkha, the dukkha due to the kind of economic and political system that we have now, or the tribalism, things like uh, police brutality, uh, institutionalized racism. Um, this is tough, you know, because it involves inevitably some, some kind of question about how do we want to change systems? How do we want to change institutions? And, you know, traditionally, that's not what Buddhism focused on. It, it's definitely requiring a jump or a leap. But I think it's just, you know, given the world that we're living in, look at, look at all these cascading crises. I, I just don't think we can avoid it. And anyway, the third point, and sorry I'm taking so long here, but the third point about the Bodhisattva path is it doesn't tell us what to do, really, but it tells us how to do it. And, and if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense, right? If you go back to Buddha or even the Asian traditions, I mean, the problems they faced were so different. We can't expect to find answers in the old traditional texts or commentaries. Uh, but there's a great deal about how we should act in the world. And in addition to the basic precepts, what I think really stands out is the emphasis on non-attachment to results. The Buddha said that one of the characteristics of an, awake, uh, of an awakened person is that uh, they act without expectation. Easy to misunderstand, easy to focus on our motivations and intentions and to think that the results aren't important. I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means in the face of don't know mind, in the face of the kind of complexity and difficulty of what we're facing now, what I think it really is what referring to is that our job today is to do the very best we can, not knowing if anything we do is going to make any difference whatsoever. Which doesn't mean that we don't think strategically and you know work as hard as we can, but at the same time we can't control the results. And and it's really important to be able to do the best one can, but not to become so frustrated or disappointed or angry afterwards. Uh, the task of the bodhisattva is to sort of, you know, continue, continue, um, nonetheless. And, and I think that's, that's the huge challenge for us today. The one thing I'd add to that, it's interesting. I, I think what, motiv what motivates the bodhisattva is not optimism or, or even hope. It's something deeper than that. Uh, optimism, pessimism, that's a kind of dualistic concept. Likewise, hope, despair. It's something more than that. It's, 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 if, if you're motivated by hope, it means you're going to be shadowed or dogged by despair because that's the way those kind of dualisms work. So it's, it's more that, as I think Wendell Berry put, put it, you know, we don't have the right to ask if we're going to be successful. The only right we have is to ask what's the right thing to do. What does the earth require of us if we're going to continue to live on it? And, and I think that's the, that's the kind of attitude that people who have a meditation or a contempl contemplative practice, I think it can really, that's how we embody that kind of groundedness in our practice. It enables us to, 
do the very best we can, but also be non-attached in the sense that in the sense that we're not dependent upon the kind of results. We just to say it another way, I think when we're thinking about ecological activity, our job, um, what we do is like our gift to the earth. And like every real gift, you don't give a gift because you expect something in return, right? It's like, it's, it's freely given. We don't know what the earth is gonna do with this gift. We don't know if it's gonna make any difference. And that's okay. That's nonetheless our job. No, that's a very long answer, Ryan, to your question. Uh, I'm afraid it was a very kind of open leading one, so I'm sorry about that. But I also suspect you have some more questions. No, I think that's perfect. I, one of the questions that came up for me while listening to that, you said not too many people in the Buddhist community are sort of engaged with this sort of practice. Do you, do you think there's a pushback that people are happy just sitting on their cushions or um, do you think there, it's starting to emerge more in the Buddhist community where they're starting to accept their, it, it goes beyond into that social action realm? It's, it's a good question. <clears throat> Ecologically, it's definitely been a slow development, you know. Uh, I think actually Buddhism, Buddhist institutions in the U.S., for example, um, within the last decade or two, there's been a lot more focus and I think a lot more success in sort of raising consciousness about uh, racism. I mean, as, as you probably know, you know, the, the traditional, not that old Buddhist institutions in this country, they've tended to be pretty white and, and middle class. And so there's been a really big challenge in overcoming that. And I think to some degree, Buddhism, well, it's still early days, but we've moved a lot. Ecologically, it's been slower. Even a couple of years ago, when I was offering workshops on what I call eco-dharma, it was, it was quite disappointing. You know, a number of them had to be canceled or should have been canceled because people just didn't sign up. Uh, and other teachers noticed the same thing, that uh, when they announced, for example, they were going to give a dharma talk on the ecological crisis or, or climate emergency, when they announced that, for the next week, they noticed fewer people came. Um, you know, you can speculate about why that is, but I think it's Buddhism, let, let, let's just say that Buddhism has not been at the forefront of religious spiritual responses to the kind of ecological situation we're facing. Yeah, yeah I, I know when I read, I know for me, when I read uh, um, Ecodharma that, and it's just me, but I had, there's almost a heightened sense of anxiety when you hear about all the ecological problems and you did such a great job just going over um, all the different sort of statistics out there that just makes you go, God, are we just screwed? You know, like, what's the point? Like if, if we're already in this bad a condition. And so I'm wondering, I'm glad you brought up the point of kind of not being attached to the results, because I think for people, I think you had a good quote about people that, find Buddhism sort of have some sort of suffering or, or, or I forgot the exact quote, um, but it's about, we come to Buddhism out of our own individual suffering, right? Yes. That's where and so when you, Yeah. And so when you, you know, at least in my mind, when you, when you find a Buddhist teacher, you're, you're going for that enlightenment. It's sort of a clear result. You know, when you have it, you don't have it. And then sort of when you, you know, I just wonder if it's too, 
for, for you, do you feel like, okay, that you've reached this sort of point where, uh, the, the dukkha or the, uh, of the, of the world is just too much and, and you have to sort of take it on. Like you can't, you can't do anymore. You can't ignore it. And, and it's something you just feel out of your own being, you have to respond to. Mm-hmm. Well, just to follow up on that quote, Matt, um, you know, why do we come to something like Buddhist practice in the first place? And, and, you know, it's a considerable effort, right? It takes time, energy, money, pain in the legs and the butt, whatever. Uh, So what usually motivates us is some individual dukkha suffering. You know, it might be physical, mental pain. It might be something more abstract, the kind of existential, what's it all about sort of thing. But that's what originally that's what normally I think would bring us to the practice. But if we practice deeply, what I think happens, you know, what I observe is that we begin to realize that at, at the root of the dukkha is this sense of separation that I referred to earlier, this sense that there's a me inside that's somehow separate from you and other people and the rest of the world outside. And therefore, my well-being is separate from your well-being, right? I mean, that in a way is, is, is at the heart of the dukkha. And as we begin to overcome that, as we begin to see through the delusion of self, it makes us more aware of, I don't want to say it's outside ourselves, but just more aware of, of what's going on in the, in the bigger world and more sensitive to it. And so... I think there's a natural kind of shift as we begin to wake up from the sort of self-preoccupation that originally motivates us to realizing that, whoa, you know, in, in the most profound sense, I am the world. I'm one manifestation or expression of the world, and my well-being isn't separate from the world. And therefore, this great challenge, this great shift of the meaning of my life away from, you know, what's in it for me, to, whoa, what can I do to make this world a better place for everyone? I think that that's kind of a natural development, and that's really at the heart of, of the bodhisattva path. You know, Sometimes it's been expressed as if the bodhisattvas are these great figures who sort of, they could disappear into nirvana or whatever, but they choose to stick around to help the rest of us. And I think that that's really missing the fundamental point, that the practice of engagement being concerned about what's going on in the world is is part of our is part of our own practice you know my favorite maybe my all-time favorite quotation um is uh not by um, a buddhist but a neo-advaitin named nizargadatta and i think he put it really well when he said when i look inside and see that i am nothing that's wisdom when I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life flows. Wow. Wisdom and love or wisdom and... I mean, that's the two pillars of the Buddhist path. And he shows the relationship between them, right? As we begin to see through the delusion of separation, what does it mean to integrate that in how we actually live in the world? And that's called a life of love. It's, that kind of love isn't a, a feeling. It's it it it's a new way of being that integrates this this realization. Uh, 
One more favorite quotation, as you know from some of the books, I love quotations. Uh, Franz Kafka, in one of his letters, he said, maybe it was to Melina, he said, you can live in such a way that you turn away from the sufferings of the world, but perhaps that is the one suffering you might avoid. So br break down that last one for me again for the Kafka, because I have to hear that again, if you sure, don't mind. Yeah. You can live in a way that you turn away, that you ignore the sufferings of the world. You can do that, but that turning away is maybe the one suffering you could avoid, your own suffering that, that you could avoid. I think he's Perfect. saying what I was trying to say earlier in a more pithy, pithy way there, that our turning away, our, our delusion of separation, our delusion that my well-being is separate from yours and others, that there's a huge dukkha built into that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a good segue, but one of, one of the things that also we we're kind of discussing is you, you do a good job, I think, identifying sort of in the, the modern world, sort of there being um, it's, it's secular and, and, and religion has kind of lost its place, its transcendence of what it can bring. Um, and I was just hoping you can maybe talk a little bit about from your perspective about what role do you see the spiritual traditions playing in today's today's age to perhaps bring a, a different perspective or framework in which we could help decrease some of the suffering in the world? Hmm. Hmm. Well, one way to answer that is, is to talk about what are sometimes called the axial age religions, which includes Buddhism. It would also include the Abrahamic, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. You know, Today we take them for granted, but what was so important in their time was the kind of universalism that they brought in. Um, in other words, if you look at earlier, you know, earlier civilizations, say Egyptians or Mesopotamians or the New World ones, Aztecs, Incas, Mayas, uh, it, it's interesting how the, the gods, the religion, for them is very much integrated into the state. It's tribal, right? What you get with something like Buddhism and say Jesus uh, is a kind of universalism that, that's, that avoids, that tries to overcome that us versus them. Uh, so, you know, um, with the metta meditation in Buddhism, you, you encompass absolutely, you start with yourself, but you encompass all living beings in the universe really. And, and this is very much Jesus' idea, too, if you think about the parable of, of the Good Samaritan, the idea of love for everyone. The irony is the way they were institutionalized very quickly lost that. And it's very sad to, way, to, to see the way that, you know, religions have become so tribal again and us versus them. And so what I see is a kind of revival of, of the real meaning of, of those religions. But... The other thing to, that I think we need to learn from them or go beyond them is at least the way that they've been understood, they've tended to focus our attention on some other reality, something transcendent. I mean, certainly say with Christianity, whether or not it was Jesus' intention or not, the way that 
it was institutionalized with the Roman Empire, right? It, it's all about qualifying for heaven, living in a certain way that after you die, you'll go to heaven. And if that's your attitude, there's a certain kind of devaluation built into this world. This is just a stepping stone to something better, right? So you shouldn't be really that much concerned about it. Same thing with Buddhism. If the goal is the individual awakening and attainment of Nibbana or Nirvana, well, inevitably built into that understanding is that same devaluation. This world, again, is, is ultimately something to be escaped from. And we're, you know, we're supposed to live in a compassionate way while we're here, but the ultimate goal is to sort of, is, is as it were, somewhere else. So this has sometimes been cause, called cosmological dualism. And I, I think, depending on how metaphorically you might want to understand it, uh, you know, we can understand it in a more non-dual way. I mean, I think Mahayana Buddhism, for example, is there are certain streams within it that are much clearer. For example, in Zen, the idea is not to transcend this world, but to realize its true nature. The idea built into that is that our usual way of experiencing the world, which we take for granted as the real world, it's a construction. It's a psychological and social construction that can be deconstructed and reconstructed, which is what the spiritual path is all about. So in that sense, I think we need to move beyond the way the axial age religions like Buddhism and Christianity have sort of lost a lot of their profound transformative power because they focused us on, you know, some other reality. And, and to that extent, diminished the importance of, of, of this reality. Now, Matt, does that answer your question enough? Or, I mean, I think, you know, what, yes. what, what we're talking about there then is a really pretty profound transformation. The, the fascinating for thing for me as a scholar is when you really go, go into the, the heart of these different traditions, I think you can see it there. You know, it, it, we have, I mean, all of them, say, for example, uh, Christianity certain has, certainly has its Meister Eckhart and Cloud of the Knowing. Islam has its Rumi and Ibn Arabi. You have these great mystics who I think, I just see them also talking about non-duality and basically the same kind of thing I'm talking about here. The reason I mention them is I think the resources are there within these great traditions to move in this direction. Whether or not they will do that is uh, another question. Yeah. Yeah, this is um, hitting on for me a really interesting subject, and I know that you co-authored and took part in the Mech Mindfulness uh, critique. And um, just to, to segue into this, I think one of the one of the criticisms of the modern mindfulness and meditation um, movements, as they've been derived from traditional Buddhism is when you rip a, a, a certain practice out of its traditional and historical context with certain ethical guidelines or parameters, a, a sangha, and all of the um, kind of the, the, the spiritual um, richness and soulfulness that the tradition contains mm. is, is removed. And you have this isolated, you know, there's this atomized practice of, of mindfulness yeah. and so forth. So how do you think about the role of traditional, you know, the Iron Age axial religious parts of Buddhism and how those can be reintegrated so that we can prevent some of the 
um, modern pathology of whether it's overly psychologizing mindfulness or using in a way where we're not critically examining the systems and structures that we're in, right? How do we, how do we bring some of the, the gems back of the, the pre-modern days to, to kind of enrich our modern practice of mindfulness and meditation? You know, act, actually, uh, my, my attitude toward the mindfulness movement is, is generally positive. Um, there, there are certainly things that I think are very problematical, such as we, Ron and I talked about in that McMindfulness uh, blog. Um, but, but I think it's, let me say it this way. When I started Zen practice a long time ago, you know, th there was a certain kind of naivete about, oh my God, this is fantastic. This is what the world has been needing and waiting for. And, you know, pretty soon everyone's going to want to do this and this will be the solution. And, you know, it, it took us a while, those of us who started in those days, to realize, well, it wasn't going to develop that way. Uh, you know, not everyone's going to want to do Zen or become a Buddhist. And so the question is, is there something within the Buddhist traditions that therefore people might actually be, you know, can benefit from? And, and so to that degree, um, I, I'm fairly sympathetic, as I said, with the mindfulness movement, um, with the exception of the way, it's like people who are traumatized, which is a lot, or maybe most of us, uh, mindfulness can be really, really good, even if you don't have a larger spiritual practice, even if it's just the mindfulness. Uh, you know, where it becomes problematic is maybe helping uh, military people become better snipers, or likewise within large corporations, where, you know, it, it's the bottom line there is profit, and can mindfulness help people become more efficient? Maybe rather than hiring the number of people that you need, maybe what you'll do is uh, send the employees on a mindfulness course and help them organize their time better or something, and then they'll be more productive. The important thing, I think, is for mindfulness, again, not to be the means to some other end. That's when it becomes very problematical. If it's simply used as part of a corporate machine, as it were, rather than developing its real potential for healing. The other thing about mindfulness that I find very encouraging is that just in the past few years, there's a lot more concern about social issues. So for example, there's a, um, there's a movement centered in, in England, in Britain. Uh, there, there's a network, Mindfulness and Social Change, of people who are, for the most part, mindfulness teachers who are very concerned about some of the same things that we are regarding, uh, you know, racism, ecological problems, and, and so forth. So I, I guess in that way, I think mindfulness can be a very good thing. The other thing that I'd emphasize, it, if you do mindfulness in a, in a really, should I say the right way or a devoted way, you don't necessarily know what's going to come out of it. I mean, I've known people who started with mindfulness and they got more and more pulled into it and became very interested in Buddhism, you see. So there's a kind of irony. If, if you're meditating deeply, things can happen. Your original motivation might be one thing, but what that actually means for uh, what you're actually going to, what's going to come out the other end, in a way you don't know. So I, 
yeah, I think keeping mindfulness in kind of a box is definitely problematical. I guess I'm encouraged by the ways in which it seems like it's struggling to escape from that box and uh, incorporate other things. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. It's, <clears throat> excuse me. I think, as you said really well, it's the, what becomes problematic is the instrumentalization of mindfulness and, and some of the, um, I call it the commodification of consciousness <laughs> that can occur. You know, when I, when I think about the, the great axial uh, religions and philosophical traditions that emerge, I think of it as kind of two parts. One, one, I think about it as what you were saying earlier, there was a universalist and transcendentalist uh, impulse to transcend this kind of fallen ephemeral reality to some kind of nirvana or heaven or platonic form you know a universe that we can go to and i think of the second part that all axial traditions have in common is the virtue ethics and the emphasis on cultivating virtue and character building and so my personal critique of the modern mindfulness movement is it's strong in consciousness development weak in character development mm -hmm. and i know that coming from a, a you know my mom is a, a zen minister in hawaii so I grew up in a Zen temple, and I always felt that the, especially the Japanese tradition, the Zen tradition, is very strong in character development. There's something about Zazen and, and the practice. It's not only an experience of consciousness or enlightenment or satori, right? There's also a deep development of your, of your character through the discipline, through the practice. And it, I think at its worst, it can be very anachronistic and even abusive, but I think at its best, it can, it can really kind of galvanize our moral character, both uh, for ourselves and interpersonally, uh, how we relate to others. So how do you think about a modern form of Buddhist ethics that can accompany meditation and consciousness development? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's interesting, this question about character development, because I was just uh, listening to a, a talk yesterday from a mindfulness teacher who was referring to some studies that seem to support the idea that mindfulness on its own tends to make people more empathic and more compassionate, in which case that would seem to go along with what you were saying. But again, the presumption there, I think, is that the mindfulness isn't just used as a means to an end in a kind of utilitarian fashion. I mean, I think it points to what I was saying, that your motivation for engaging in some kind of mindfulness practice might be one thing, what it's actually going to do to you may be quite different from from that expectation yeah getting back to the question of ethics one of the things that i've thought about and written quite a bit about is uh within the buddhist world how frankly i think we are probably misunderstanding karma um when, when you remember uh, that I mean, historically, when we go back and, and look at the time of the Buddha, at that time, people understood, uh, I mean, they, they believed in karma, but the tendency then was to understand it in a somewhat mechanistic way, ritualistic way, that you had some control with rituals and ceremonies to bring about certain things. Maybe your, you know, maybe a merchant could hire a Brahmin to do a ceremony that would have his wife give birth to a son, right? Everyone wanted sons. Um, what the Buddha emphasized was the motivation, the intention behind what we do. And, and I think that's really important. But when we think now about karma, I think we focus on the results. When you hear the term karma, you know, we think, oh, that's your karma. You know, that's what you deserve. That's what you get. But we're missing the point that the term karma 
literally means action. And the focus is on transforming your motivations, which goes back to the virtue ethics that you were talking about. What I'm getting at here is what I think the Buddha was pointing at was something that we're often missing. You know, when we think about karma, we want to act in a way that's going to bring about a certain types of experiences. I suspect that the Buddha was really focusing on something like this. If you want to transform the quality of your life, if you want to change how you experience other people and how they experience and respond to you, there's actually a very simple way to do that. Uh, not necessarily easy, but uh, quite simple. Transform your motivations, right? I mean, if your motivations are different, if your fundamental motivations uh, transform, then you're going to be experiencing the world in a different way. A pickpocket is going to experience a group of people in a different way than the Buddha. In fact, I'd say they literally live in a different world or a different kind of a world. So someone who's motivated by what Buddhism calls the three poisons, greed, ill will, delusion, you know, that usually goes along with the delusion of separate self, my own separate well-being, the tendency to manipulate the world to get what you want out of it, all of which reinforces the delusion of separation. You're going to live in a certain kind of a world, but somebody who's motivated by generosity, loving kindness, and the realization that we're not separate from each other, somebody who lives like that, they, they, they can open up, they can be transparent, they don't have to pretend to be any different than they are. And the reality is, people find that pretty attractive. I mean, though, those kinds of people, less confrontational, less judgmental, certainly more loving, their world, their reality is, is going to be quite different. And, and somehow I think the way we tend to think about karma is focused so much on this magical cosmological phenomenon, which may or may not be true. I don't know. But in a way, I put it on a shelf, right? It's like, I don't have to know that. I'm not sure I can know that. But in a way, it doesn't make any difference because it amounts to the same thing. If, if I do the best I can right now, after I die, whatever, that'll take care of itself. Uh, and all of that goes back to what you were saying about virtue ethics, about becoming a different kind of person. Because if, if our sense of self, separate self, is composed of mostly habitual ways of thinking and feeling and acting and so forth, the, the most important habitual aspects, I think, are our motivations. There are fundamental stance in relationship to other people in terms of how we're relating to them and the world. And I think one of the foundational realizations and teachings of all the great religions is you change those fundamental motivations, you're going to become a different person and you're going to live in a different world. Such a wonderful teaching, so simple, and yet how many of us really understand it? Yeah, Dave, that's a good segue. I know you talked, you had a really good um, section that sort of emphasized how these poisons are contained in some of the, the structures. And I know with, I think, greed, you talked about our economic, uh, economic system, the ill will aggression you associated with the, the military 
um, aggression, also with delusion, the role of the media. So mm. it, it's all it's surprising to me once you have sort of if you come to this place where you recognize you're not separate from the you know from everything, and then you find yourself right in the middle smack dab in the middle of economic injustice and ecological crisis, military budget exploding and the media just, you know, fake news and all the, all this stuff going on. You're like, wait, I just got enlightened. What, what, what's going on? <laughs> you know? And, and so I, I guess, you know, is it, to me, it really said, you just have to, you know, is it enough to just sort of recognize what's going on and then sort of try to attempt to transform these poisons into these motivations? Is that, sort of the goal, so to speak? Uh, well, it, I mean, putting it like that does ask the question, if our economic system, sort of late consumer corporate capitalism, if, if that's uh, institutionalized greed, and, and I think it is, if you understand greed as you never have enough, well, that's a pretty good definition of our economic system, right? Not only consumers never consume enough, but Corporations are never profitable enough, their market share, their stock price never big enough. Collective GNP, GDP never big enough. But as I like to say, why is more and more always better if it can never be enough, right? So it's this need to grow if it's not gonna collapse kind of, kind of mentality. Now, if we accept that as a kind of institutionalized greed, what's the alternative? That, that's what you're asking. And, that, that's a great question. Again, Buddhism is not going to give us a, a very clear answer to that, right? I mean, the, the, the situation of Buddhism. Uh, but I think we can see certain elements, uh, you know, w looking at something like, uh, uh, what is it, democratic socialism, such, you know, people have talked about. I mean, for example, um, institutionalized love or institutionalized general, well, what about a national healthcare system? For goodness sake, we don't have one in this country. We're the only quote unquote developed, maybe overdeveloped nation that doesn't have it. We have a healthcare industry. The point being very different, a healthcare system is to help people be or become healthy. An industry is another way to make money. The system works very well making money. It works very well for wealthy people who have the money, but it doesn't really do that great a job for everyone else. So I see that as one example of how uh, one of the transformations that would be in line with the kind of thing that Buddhism is talking about. Um, and, and I think whether or not one wants to get rid of capitalism altogether, or even how you define capitalism, I think it's very clear we have an economic system now that works. You really get the sense the main focus is helping millionaires become billionaires and good luck to the rest of us, you know, this incredible and still growing gap between rich and poor, which of course the coronavirus pandemic has just, it, it, it hasn't just exaggerated it, but it's brought out the reality that's been there for a long time. So I see that as, as, as one, one example of, of, of what we might do. And, and there are others. I mean, um, when you look at militarism, you know, I mean, now people are talking about defunding the police or even I think Bernie and some others are now talking about uh, maybe 10% reduction in the military. I've sometimes wondered if we should have a department of peace. And, you know, 
what if we gave that 10% of all the money we gave to the Department of Defense? Uh, I wonder what, uh, you know, so there are, there are things we can do. Again, I think we have to be creative. I, I think our situation here is so different from that in the time of the Buddha. We can't just read off things from the Buddhist sutras, but we can integrate these kinds of, as we were saying, sort of basic attitudes, basic virtues, basic, basic concerns, and try to inter integrate them as best we can. Yeah. Does that help? Does that, was that very clear? I don't know. No, no, it's perfect, David. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess my next question too, you have this quote um, a couple of times and I'm also a huge Joseph Campbell fan. Mm. So you, you taught, you, you quote him as saying, if you want to change the world, you change the metaphor. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, what, what is the metaphor you would change? Mm -hmm. Or even to expand that, change the story, mm -hmm. you know, it's like the narrative. Yeah, the, narr the narrative. I mean, in a way, those are all, di I think, different words for the same thing. Going back to the realization that behind, say, political differences, there's this really foundational story that I think you, you, you can find. I, I mean, for example, uh, I don't necessarily want to pick on Republicans here, but certainly there are many who, um, I mean, if you ask them and, and sort of scratch, scratch below the surface and get at to the basic story that they're sort of taking for granted, I, I think it's a kind of a social Darwinist or Ayn Rand story, you know, the world is a tough place. And if you don't look out for yourself, no one will. And if you don't do it to them, they'll do it to you. And yeah, there are winners and there are losers and you wanna be a winner, you don't wanna be a loser. And if you're a loser, well, don't blame anyone else. I think that's probably a pretty good description of the basic story of our president, uh, to be honest. Uh, so if, if that's your fundamental story, then it is going to imply living and relating to other people in a certain kind of way. It's also going to imply a lot of dukkha. You know, somebody who understands that story is going to be experiencing a lot of suffering. They're, you know, they're going to bring that upon themselves. And certainly, again, referring to Trump, he's a very unhappy guy. Have you ever seen such an unhappy president? I mean, he's a very insecure guy. It's like that, that whole worldview doesn't bring out the, the potential for love and the kind of grounding that that, that can provide. So in, instead of that story, metaphor, narrative, you know, whatever you want to call it, there's, there's the other possibilities of realizing our, you know, non-separation. And, and that's, that's what I keep coming back to, I guess, when I think about something like Buddhism or, or the great traditions, which is, you know, helping us overcome the delusion of separation and the delusion that my well-being is completely separate from your well-being. I Let me say something a little more here because recently I've been fascinated by evolutionary psychology, right? For evolutionary for evolution the only thing that counts is getting your genes into the next generation, right? And that can easily be understood in an in individual way such as we've just been talking about. But there's also this thing called group selection. That is to say that 
you can understand evolution simply as this fear competitions among individuals to, you know, sort of keep your genes going, or you can understand the importance of community and how that can be. And here's what's fascinating. The, the, the individual selection tends to be synonymous with, with the negative things, the ego, the selfishness, and so forth. And the community focus tends to be synonymous with what we consider to be the good virtues. You know, love, generosity, taking care of each other, uh, self-sacrifice, and, and so forth. And this really seems to be, I think, at the root of morality, of, of the struggle between good and evil. But here's the important thing. Despite what some Buddhist traditions sometimes say, the Buddha did not say our nature is basically good. He said we have good tendencies and we have negative tendencies. And on this path, the idea is to minimize the one and to maximize and develop the other. In other words, you could kind of understand what it means to be a human being as this tension, and I, I, I would call it something built into us in evolutionary terms between, you know, looking out for myself versus feeling a part of something greater than myself. Uh, and and that, that's really, I think, what it comes down to and what religion at its best, I think, can, can help us with. Because this is also connected with a kind of ontological realization about depending on which way we go, what's that going to mean for, for how, how joyful, how, how loving, how happy we are in our lives, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating the way that psychologists and even e economists, you know, have made this discovery about, you know, w once you have a certain basic amount of income, making lots and lots more money does not make you happier. You know, what makes people happier? Well, guess what? It's the quality of their relationships with other people. The Buddha would not have been surprised to hear that, nor would Jesus, nor would a lot of the great, you know, the great religious figures. They, they, they had that realization and how wonderful it would be if somehow these people who are so preoccupied with doing whatever they need to do to become rich, how wonderful it would be if, if somehow it became generally accepted. Maybe it should be taught in schools, you know, what really makes people happy is the quality of your relationships. How might that change how we live together? Sorry, I went off in a bit of a, one of my hobby horses there, but. Uh, no, that was, that was a fantastic answer. Um, and it makes me think too, I remember someone once said that if you, if you read it this way, the, the Buddha was simultaneously a radical liberal and a radical conservative because there is a, there is a call to, uh, personal responsibility for your own suffering and working with your own mind and tendencies, transforming your negative tendencies into positive ones. And in doing so, gaining insight into the, the radical, you know, quantum entanglement and interconnection of reality and mm -hmm. having the compassion and love cultivated in you to pour over into society and towards others too, right? And I, I kind of like that the, uh, transpartisan or nonpartisan <laughs> take on, on Buddhism and how that can kind of fulfill both of our uh, yearnings for healthy individualism and healthy collective responsibility too. And to tail off that, I'm curious, at, at least um, well, I live in Portland, Oregon, and I've, I've been around some social justice groups and circles. And I've noticed personally, and I want to see if you've noticed this too, mm -hmm. there's a growing hunger for 
some kind of inner work or, or spirituality or ways of working with ourselves? How can we bring more compassion and mindfulness and clarity to our social engagement? Have you, have you seen a kind of growing hunger for something like this yourself? Yes, yes, indeed. And, and I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that you're noticing the same thing in Portland. Yeah. I mean, as, as we both know, you know, uh, social justice work, if you want to call it that, I mean, it's, it's tough, right? The pay, if there is any, isn't going to be very good, right? The, uh, I don't know what the, I'm trying to make some joke about the, uh, the side benefits or whatever. Anyway, it's tough. And it's really hard, I think, therefore, to avoid being burned out and, and frustrated. And I guess I referred to this somewhat, somewhat earlier. And, and I think what you're pointing to is this realization how valuable it can be to ground one's activism in some kind of contemplative practice that enables one to do what I was talking about earlier, you know, act without attachment to results, doing the very best we can, but nonetheless, not being so attached that when it doesn't work out the way we want, that we're, you know, that, that we're depressed or, or anxious. So I, I do find this very encouraging, especially given the way that I've been preoccupied earlier. I've spent so much time talking about, talking to Buddhists about way that, why they should become more engaged. And I'm really delighted to see that the activists are now wanting to, you know, find some, some kind of contemplative or spiritual grounding. One of the interesting ways this played out for us here, um, um, I was, um, I mentioned earlier that I've been involved with some local extinction rebellion groups. And um, one of the ways that played out is that they, they became aware that I am a background, I have a background as a Buddhist teacher. And also I'm one of the founders of this new Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center up uh, above Boulder. Uh, and I was actually requested by some of them, could we have a meditation retreat to introduce uh, activists, mainly Extinction Rebellion people, to some kind of meditation practice, practice? And that's exactly what we were able to do. And it was wonderful. Some of them already had some experience of meditation. But basically what we did, it was only a long weekend, but we were able to go up to the center and, and um, you know, provide this kind of teaching, a lot of meditation, a lot of time outdoors, a couple of Dharma talks, and I just was really excited about it. So that's all a long way of saying, yes, I, I think that it's happening, and I think it's, it's really, really necessary, because frankly, as I tried to say at the very beginning, I, I think this double-sided practice, Ram Dass called it a self-sharpening tool, this double-sided practice is the most important contribution of something like Buddhism right now, right? We meditate, we have insights. The greater challenge is integrating those insights, as I was saying, into how we live in the world. And we learn from that. And we learn, we're transformed in some ways, and, other, and others not enough. You know, we, we see where we get stuck. What's the old joke? If you think you're enlightened, well, go spend the holidays with your family. You know, so uh, we practice, we meditate, things happen, but the real test is when we go out in the world and how does it actually change? And the challenge of integrating that, as I, as I say, so it's that double-sided practice that frankly, I think 
is, is exactly what we need today. In contrast, I think we have this old myth, a lot of us in the spiritual or contemplative world, this myth of sort of Milarepa goes into his caves and, and eats nettles for 40 years and he comes out completely enlightened. I don't think it works like that, you know, like, like I, Joanna Macy, whom I quoted earlier, the world has a role to play in our awakening, in our transformation. And in any case, that's really, I think, what the world needs today, people who embody that, that double two-sided practice, where they, can, where they do continue to work on their own individual personal transformation, but they also see that they can't ultimately separate that from the challenge of uh, social transformation. Yeah. yeah, beautifully said, beautifully said. I might feel very inspired listening to you talk about that. And to, to dive deeper into that, I'm wondering how, we, how the Buddhist practice can bring more compassion, especially in such a time of upheaval and uh, social divisiveness and polarization where everyone seems to be yelling at each other and you know, on all sides and it's just uh, complete chaos in, in our civic relationships and, and life. And I'll just say that one of the things I think can be very helpful with a Buddhist uh, you know, spiritual tradition is that the, the bodhisattva, you, you talked about the bodhisattva archetype as a way to, as a way to kind of you know, bridge these, you know, the inner practice with the, the outer work as well, and how that can, the, the commitment to, to, you know, embodying bodhisattva-ness or something can be a fuel of inspiration to continue to practice equanimity and compassion and loving kindness towards people that drive you absolutely nuts, you know, politically or, or in the mm -hmm. culture wars or whatever. And I've been to other groups that are attempting to have dialogue between sides and try to have more, you know, civil exchanges about divisive issues. And to me, it kind of, it, these things always are a little unsatisfying because they don't feel like it's, it's enough. Like, why, why should I commit to being more civil when I think you're an asshole, right? It's only the bodhisattva ideal that really motivates me enough to really be compassionate. So how do you think, you know, we can really work on that and, and be more loving and accepting or, or uh, whatever, compassionate towards people, even if we have huge disagreements with them and are very irritated by their, their political persuasions? Right. Well, I, I think the answer ultimately goes back to what we were saying about non-duality and non-separation. But may, maybe the important preliminary point here, you know, in the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam in particular, right? Um, the fundamental duality is really something like good versus evil. And the way that's played out historically, of course, when you think about witchcrafts and heresy and so forth is, us good guys against those evil guys. And what, you know, once you've determined that something is evil, uh, you don't have to understand it and negotiate with it. The idea is to destroy it, right? Whereas the interesting thing for Buddhism, uh, insofar as there's a comparable duality, it's between uh, delusion and wisdom or ignorance and awakening. And this is a very different sort of thing, especially when the awakening involves overcoming the delusion of separation. So the idea then is that if there's somebody that I'm feeling different from, or it's not to be dismissive of them in the sense of, it's like, you may think they're an asshole. Well, guess what? They, they think you're an asshole too. And that's, that, that's not a good place to start necessarily. Or insofar as we feel that, to realize, like the Buddha would say, well, we all have the same basic Buddha nature, if you want to use those terms. 
and we're all within this great network of delusion and efforts to sort of transform that and and to sort of wake up to our to our non-duality so i mean what i think it really comes down to is is this realization of being able to distinguish certain problematical things that people sometimes do and that we have to sometimes do everything we can to stop but nonetheless not using that as an excuse to label somebody as an evil person to be destroyed you know i mean i'm thinking of a very important politician very powerful politician who as we said earlier is is not a very happy guy uh, Should we hate him or should we at some level, if we understand his conditioning, his childhood, that he's such a damaged, traumatized, immature uh, human being. I mean, it's a shame that he's in the position that he's in, but it's not about labeling him evil, even though we may need to do everything we can to stop him. You know, I think a really good example there was uh, uh, Mohandas Gandhi. Right. Interesting. Right. He he's Indian, but he was educated as a lawyer in in Britain. He liked the British. He respected the British. He didn't vilify them. You know, in the struggle for Indian independence, he didn't label them as evil. He treated them respectfully in the belief that, hey, there's only a few of you here and there's millions and millions and millions of us. And that means sooner or later, you're just going to have to walk out of here. And they did, you see. So. I think in some ways, and uh, maybe we could likewise think the same of uh, Nelson Mandela in, in South Africa, you know, it, it is a way of building on the positive and, and, and not being defeated by this natural tendency, this tribalistic tendency, again, I think built into us by evolution to, to see the world in terms of us versus them. I think that's what the great religions encourage us to do is to sort of try to find ways to overcome that. Wasn't it Jesus who said what, uh, distinguish the, uh, the sin from the sinner, you know, what, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Some, somebody said that, that, uh, that, that might be a more Christian way of, uh, of expressing what I'm, what I'm trying to point to. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, it kind of leads me to my next question. One of the themes that's been popular in our podcast, we've talked about and, and the variations on it, is this idea of the soul of America. And I'm not sure if there's a Buddha equivalency, because I'm not sure how souls match the mythology there. But the gist of it, right? And I know um, one of the famous kind of, not famous, but uh, something I heard on that, the, a variety of that is that they called ra racism the cancer of the soul of America. Mm. And you really also, I liked how you shift on talked about the West sort of obsession with good and evil and Buddhism bringing in more of the delusion and the wisdom piece of it. And so I was just wondering if you had a riff a little bit on where, where we're at today with, with this idea of the soul of America. And if you could just maybe, you know, what is it that you see needs to happen? Or if you had, you know, a genie by your side and could wish, what, what's some of the transformations that, that you would like to see happen in America in the future and starting today? Well, first of all, your, your intuition about soul and Buddhism is correct. You know, we don't usually talk about a soul. That's another translation of the term uh, at, Atman, right? And so Buddhism is Anatman or Anatta in the sense of 
not not talking about that. But and and I think in general, there's there's a danger of what the philosophers might call the fallacy of composition. That is to say, is there really one soul? Can you generalize in a meaningful way? And frankly, I'm not sure that we can. What's what seems to me is uh, we're at a, a very critical moment. In fact, maybe this year is, is the most critical year. Certainly it's the most challenging, dangerous of my lifetime, I would say, putting it all together, right? I mean, there's, there's really been this struggle be between these two sides that I was talking about before on the individual level. You know, there is, there is a, a very self-centered story. Um, you know, the, the individualism can, can play into a certain uh, greed. Uh, it's it's uh, white people against people of color. It's Americans against uh, Chinese or, or Mexicans or s something like that. Uh, I think looking at the political situation, I, I, I do have the sense that we're at a, a real turning point and it's by no means clear which way it's going to turn. But here's one possible thing. Donald Trump has been, how to say it, Donald Trump concerns me less than the fact that so many people voted for him and support him. So he's like a, an expression of something. And it's, it seems to me this has brought a lot of things to a head. And, and he's, he's been so incompetent at, at what he's done. In a way, it's been a good thing. If, if he were more clever, it, it would be more dangerous. But I think, you know, especially with the pandemic, it's so obvious that, that he's just not there, that he's unqualified and, and so forth. I, I wonder whether his failure is also going to be the turning point because it's going to be the failure of a certain type of American politics. I mean, I, I wonder if, if he is the slow suicide of the Republican Party because they have connect, you know, they've, they've pinned their future onto him and he's going down in flames. So it seems, and you know, he, he could bring an awful lot of, very self-serving people down with him. And that might be the opening for something very, very wonderful. You know, like we said, I think a national healthcare system. Clearly we're gonna need that. We're gonna need a attitude toward the economic system that taxes the rich people more and tries to help the poor people more. We may well need, I mean, I would say we need, and who knows, something that maybe was inconceivable even a year or two ago, and maybe it's still inconceivable, but some kind of reparations for what, for the racism, for the slavery, and then the institutionalized racism of this country. So it's fascinating. It, it, it seems to me it really has a turning point. If, if, I don't think Trump can win the election, but he might be able to steal it. If, if that happens, it's hard to see that there's any future for democracy. But if what is more likely at this point that there's gonna, that he epitomizes something, frankly, so awful 
that that might lead to its rejection and therefore the opening of something more more compassionate more wonderful maybe i'm deluding myself but uh it seems to me this is the most important the most you know we're always saying this is the most important election well it is this year is is really going to determine where we go as, as a nation and certainly ecologically we don't have any time to waste so it's a pretty exciting time so i don't know if it's one soul but it it does seem to me there's this we, we can express it in terms of those stories we were talking about before or or the metaphor you know social darwinism versus um we're all in it together um it seems to me those stories are coming to a head and and we're going to see some some kind of resolution one way or the other wow what an exciting time to be alive huh? yeah yeah i mean you know and also kind of you, you kind of pitted a couple things there you know i know in my time I, I thought it was also interesting you growing up in the 60s in vietnam and nixon mm. that you thought this was a little bit more dangerous than that um, but also, you know, at least growing up for me, you know, the right was identified with the religious right. and You kind of had that traditional aspect to it. Yeah. And then you also kind of mentioned sort of the, the need for sort of this national health care system. And we, you know, um, as, a, as a Democrat, you have now Biden, who's sort of against that policy. And I think the younger generation are sort of left sort of going, what the hell is, is going on? You know, none of this seems to make sense. The religious right, their, their ground of uh, moralism seems to have fallen away. Yep. And the Democrats seems like, okay, well, the more, you know, let's nationalize the healthcare system. And, and even the, the Democratic leader isn't saying that. And, and I, I guess, you know, I'm sort of left with that same question of sort of kind of what's going on right now and where mm -hmm. do we find our place? And I know at least with the Growing Down podcast, I, I like the marriage of the spiritual and the progressivism. And you could bring sort of those two aspects and at least have some sense of peace to know when all of this goes to hell, at least you still have your cushion you can come down to and, and find some sense of peace when all this turmoil is going on. And there's no question in there. I just wanted to give a reflection kind of based well, on what you said. No, that, that's great. I mean, I think the generational is a really important part of this, isn't it? The fact that, well, I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that, uh, um, you know, socialism isn't a bad word. You know, it's like when I grew up, socialism was basically identified with communism. That was, you know, and, and they can see, the young people can see they with this present economic system, what kind of future do they have? They can see the problem with that. And they also see ecologically, well, what we're headed toward. And, you know, if seeing that they don't really have much of a future, the way things are going, that certainly is 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 playing a very radicalizing force. The other thing that stood out for me, of course, is that, the young people are falling away from the traditional churches churches mm -hmm. and for good reason you know i mm -hmm. think traditional churches have failed i think that they've missed the point about what spirituality is about somehow the idea that you believe in jesus and you follow his commandments and he's going to yank you up to i mean come on that 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 doesn't work what what we're realizing what i think buddhism for example is is helping the whole spiritual landscape to realize is that you know we the heart of religion is 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 a a path of personal transformation that's what religion 
really has to offer. It's, it's not just a matter of belief and going to a church on Sunday morning and being, you know, uh, a happy consumer the rest of the week. I mean, it's, it's, it, it doesn't work like that. So part of the transformation that I think is, is necessary is a deeper realization of what religion really means and what are, what are the possibilities there. Yeah. And just for a couple of these uh, last 15 minutes here, just kind of some, some random questions. Um, are you, are you an advocate for some level of meditation being taught in the schools? Um, it, let's call it mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that uh, as, I mean, I think, I think it should go along with what Daniel Goldman has called emotional intelligence. Yeah. It's like, rather than understanding the schools as just teaching information, or certain types of skills that will make you employable, I think it could also be used to educate them about how their mind works in a non, I mean, I, I think it's important to keep the religion out of it. So this is where, uh, you know, my, mindfulness, a secular mindfulness, I think can be very, very about valuable. I mean, even then, of course, conservative Christians are going to, See, see it as sort of something sneaky as a way of getting, you know, some other kind of religion um, introduced to them. But, but I could see that being very, very valuable. Yeah. Uh, another question I had, you also, um, I loved your description of, um, I just wrote it down here, your, the Mayan, my, Mahayana, is that correct? Mahayana. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. That uh, transcendence is the inner core of phenomenal reality. I was just hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about that because um, I just thought it was a fascinating section. I'm wondering what I meant by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sort and of remind me of the about, context. Um, yeah, the, the, and the, and and what the other line I loved was um, that Buddhist emptiness can re, can be referred to unlimited potentiality mm -hmm. as an inherently um, formless but generative. And, and I guess, you know, a lot, you associated with a little bit of that lack project. I, I just thought the description of, uh, of that sort of personal reality, I thought, I just thought it was transformational when I read it. Um, so I, I don't know if you had um, sort of an, an experience where you could talk more of it, but I just, I just wanted to bring it up and, and mention that I, I loved your writing altogether, but that section too was, was fascinating for me. Well, maybe I can answer that <clears throat> indirectly um, by, by talking about what I sometimes call lack projects. Um, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about non-duality and the delusion of separation. And an inherent part of that delusion is the delusion that there's a me inside, right? And you guys are, are sort of outside. And in contemporary terms, <clears throat> that sense of separation, that delusion of self, is a, is a construct, like I said, psychological construct, right? We, as we grow up, we learn to see ourselves as other people see us. We gain this sense of self. But because it doesn't refer to anything substantial, this, this self, it's like, what is it composed of? Well, it's basically um, a bunch of mostly habitual ways of thinking and feeling and acting and how they work together. But there's no pure self or pure consciousness there, right? So what that means is 
the our usual sense of self is inherently uncomfortable, inherently insecure, for the simple reason that there's nothing real there. Um, it can't be secured because there's nothing there to to secure. And I think the way we normally experience or understand that is as a sense of lack, by which I mean the feeling that we all have at some deep level, that there's something wrong with me, there's something missing, uh, I'm not good enough. Um, and the way this plays out, interestingly, is that we're conditioned by our society to sort of look outside usually and say, ah, I'm not good enough, why not? Well, I don't have enough money. Or, or I don't have a partner, or my partner isn't good enough, or whatever. It's like we, we, we get caught up in the trap of thinking that there's something out here, and if I just get enough of that, then it will fill up this kind of infinite void at the core of my being, you know, which it can never do, right? So, I mean, I think this, this points at the heart of something like Buddhist practice, where Basically, what we're doing is learning to forget ourselves, let go of ourselves, realizing this non-duality. And the importance of that is this transformation at the base or transformation at the core. Whereas before, there was this incredible preoccupation with these lack projects or these reality projects because we don't feel that we're real enough. Whereas before, we're sort of caught up in this. I need something to substantialize myself. If we can really let go of ourselves and realize our nothingness, our emptiness, in the way that Nizargadatta looked. You, you remember I said, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, right? When we do that, it, it opens the door for a, a, a deep transformation there uh, so that in, in place of this insecurity, th there's a kind of welling up spontaneously of, of, of creativity. And, and I think that, that's, that's really the core of the point, that it, it, it liberates something deeper than ego. You know, as, as long as we're caught up in the lack projects, it's because the ego is fundamentally insecure, that it can't be secured. But if one can sort of let go and go deeper than that, then it opens up something much more, uh, I think, creative. And I, now I've forgotten what of your question I was going to answer by saying all that. No, I mean, I was just wanting to bring in, I, I thought your description of the self, the lack project, um, I, I just thought it was, a, a, you know, you talk, just talking about what personal transformations you make, how many people you know, I, I know you mentioned, I think, Ernest Becker's work, The Denial of Death, and how I saw a lot of these, you know, this, this race, well, how, you know, how much is enough? I mean, it's almost like, well, they don't want to face the death part of it. And this is just their sort of quest to, you know, not to let go of the ego or not to let go of the self, because it can be kind of scary to have to come to that realization that I'm nothing, you know, that, that's not very a comfortable feeling. So I think in our society, not many people are prepared to kind of handle that maybe they keep kicking the can down the road and when they're on their deathbed they, they have this the realization comes maybe at that time but you know you don't see too too many people engaged in a conscious practice of of every day having that realization and and you're go ahead oh no yeah if you have something i mean i i think you're pointing to the real challenge there right 
I mean, I was critical of conventional religions a few minutes ago. Well, how do they work? They give us a solution to death, don't they? They, they tell us, you know, if you behave, if you do what we tell you, you won't really die. Your soul will continue and you'll go to somewhere blissful after you die. And, you know, inverting that a little bit, Buddhism does much the same in, in, in terms of rebirth, right? Supposedly, uh, Nirvana is not being reborn into this world. Whereas when we look at Mahayana and certainly in Zen, there's, there's a lot more emphasis on realizing the unborn right here and now. That, that's a, a term that's sometimes used, that it's not simply a solution to the problem of death, uh, but, but more. So, I mean, I think f for me, Becker was really, really important in this realization of how, off, how much our fear and repression of death determines what we do. But what struck me from a Buddhist perspective, especially the Buddhist emphasis on no self, is that the fundamental problem isn't what's going to happen to us in the future. The problem is that we're not real enough. We're fundamentally empty and uncomfortable right here and now. And we're always trying to find something. So the problem isn't a future one. It's a very immediate, but that's also the, the possibility, therefore, of... Uh, of a solution, you know, right, right here and now. Yeah. And my, and my final question, you had um, a section that talked about the Dharma teachers collaborative statement about three kinds of action that are required, uh, personal, communal, and systematic. And I guess my last one wants to hit on this, uh, the communal aspect. And you mentioned, I think it was uh, Thich Nhat Hanh that talked about the, his quote, the next Buddha might appear as a Sangha. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. And yeah. Mm, that, isn't that a great quote? Yeah. I mean, in traditional Buddhism, we're, we're, we're like so many other religions waiting for some Messiah to, to come and save us from ourselves, right? Whether it's uh, Jesus Christ come again or Maitreya. And, and I think Thich Nhat Hanh's insight is, is, is really important, you know. Maybe we are the ones, maybe we must become the ones that we have been waiting for. And, you know, how do we do that? And again, I think that brings us right back to the Bodhisattva path. We need that double practice. It can't just be a matter of, you know, clinging to the cushion, or as we sometimes say in Zen, clinging to emptiness, you know, leave me alone, let me get my complete enlightenment. And then maybe when I'm a Buddha, then maybe I'll do something. You know, we, we've got to realize this kind of two-sided reciprocal, we, yes, you know, we practice really hard, we meditate, but we also bring what we learn into our engagement with the world. Uh, I think, and of course, doing that by ourselves, well, that's all very nice, but as everyone says with social movements, you know, you, you can only do so much as an individual, but if you can work with other people and come together, then that, that's when there's the real possibility of change. I remember Bill McKibben said something like, you know, if, if we individually, well, he said two things. Somebody at the Paris talks asked him, you know, what can I do as an individual? And he said, stop being an individual. And he also said previous to that in an article in I think Orion magazine, he said, you know, even if each of us did everything we possibly could to reduce our carbon footprint, right? You know, uh, 
getting off the grid, getting rid of the car, for example, uh, that would have almost no impact whatsoever. But if we did that, and also a, a percentage of us also became socially engaged, that's when things would really begin to change. So, you know, we, we can't simply function as individuals Rather, we do need to work together with other people. And that has to be based, of course, on our realization that, that we're not separate from them. It's a big challenge. You know, Buddhism in one way has been so successful in America because it kind of elides all too naturally into kind of our individualism, right? And in some ways, the individualism is good. It gives us the freedom to really change ourselves. But fundamentally, I think it, what Thich Nhat Hanh is referring to there, and I think what our situation today really calls for is communal action, or as I would might say, you know, community, Sangha action, because unless we can find ways to do that, I can't see the future turning out in a way that we'll be very happy with. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I lied. I said I had one other thing I wanted to bring up. This, is, this was also just the last point where you talked about how in the Taoist and Buddhism tradition, there's, there's this letting things be in order for them to flourish. Um, I just want to maybe leave that podcast with that because with all this being said, there's also an act of just letting go and, and just allowing things to be. Um, David, thank you so much for being on our podcast, for the work that you, you've done, for the books that you've written, and um, I think the instructions you're going to leave for future generations on how we can take the next step moving forward. Um, where can people find you if they wanted to? If they wanted to? Mm, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks to both of you for this invitation. I've enjoyed the conversation a lot, even though I've spent too much of it talking myself. Um, Regardless of finding me, uh, well, the, be the best place is simply my website, uh, www.davidloy.org. And uh, there's a lot on there. You know, there's uh, all the interesting, there's, I've written a lot of books, including the last one, Ecodharma, and all the introductions to the books are, which give a summary. Uh, there's a books page, there's podcasts, there's interviews, there's essays, blogs. There, there's quite a bit of stuff there, including an email address whereby people could contact me if they want to, uh, to follow up. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks yeah, to both of you so for your work. Thank you. Thank you.